The title for this morning's message comes right from the text, The Word Made Flesh. In chapter 1 of John's account, verses 1 through 18, John has been talking about the Word and he's been introducing us to key terms that he will explain and expound upon throughout his gospel account, such as light, such as life, such as son, such as only begotten. And he has already told us in our introduction to this book, at the end of the book, that he's written in this account. The gospel account is written with a purpose. And that purpose is that people might come to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing they might have life through his name. He has said that in the tone of his book and wants us to understand that that's why he was writing. That is why God moved in his heart and the Holy Spirit directed him. He wants us to understand that Jesus Christ, the one that at Christmas time is talked about, the babe in Bethlehem, that that one is the Messiah, that that one is the Savior, the Son of God, God in the flesh. In our text here in John chapter 1, he has introduced us to the Word. He has demonstrated the work of the Word in creation. And last week he introduced us to the messenger of the Word, that being John the Baptist. And today we come to verse 14, forward, and now we see the Word made flesh. Today we come to what is known as the Incarnation. We are introduced to a theologically tremendously in-depth subject, but to plain teaching of Scripture in just very few words. It is a very timely text and appropriate as we do reflect at this time on Bethlehem. We do reflect at Christmas time on Christ coming into the world. This is an absolutely unique situation. It is one of a kind, another way of putting it, experience that is presented to us in this text. There is no one, there will not be anyone in the future who will experience what we come across in this situation. The uniqueness is presented to us immediately in verse 14 when he uses these simple words and the word became flesh. The scriptures are precise. The scriptures are also concise in what it presents here. He doesn't even say, and the word became man. It's not what he says. He says the word became flesh. That is, he took on a human nature. Who took on a human nature? The Word, the one that has already been presented as the Creator, the one who has already been presented as the pre-existent one, the one who has already been presented as the one to whom John the Baptist was pointing. It is a situation where we are immediately introduced to the infinite one becoming incarnate, taking on flesh. It is a situation where we're introduced 
to the invisible God to which none of you, nor I, nor has any man seen visibly. And I'll address that in a few moments. The invisible God became visible. It is a situation in which the creator enters into his creation. It is absolutely astounding. We need to understand the significance of this birth in Bethlehem. We need to understand the significance of the word becoming flesh. For it is not as some have understood it. God and man. Listen carefully. This is not two people. This is not God and man. Nor is it God in man. That is the believer. The believer is one who is fully man, who in trusting in Jesus Christ becomes indwelt by the Holy Spirit and has God in him. That is not what you have at Bethlehem. You don't have a God and a man as two different people. You do not have a situation where it is a man who is simply indwelt by God. That is not the situation. You do not have a situation where the triune Godhead has been changed. There has been a lot of false doctrine on that. That is not the case. It is not a case where the triune Godhead has changed, thus he ceases to become God. Rather, it is a situation where God took on an additional nature to himself, whereby he is fully God and fully man, totally different, absolutely unique, possessing all deity and possessing the fullness of man. This is not a beginning. When we look at verse 14, when we talk about Bethlehem, we are not talking about the beginning. We're talking about someone who had no beginning, but who, though he had no beginning, at a point in time, that is the realm in which you and I live, where it is time and space, and that's all that we know. We're in that environment created by the one who is timeless. He entered in in God's perfect timing and fully God, fully man. One writer put it this way. It was the statement that attracted my eye the most in what I read. One writer of the past who's home with the Lord right now said this. He remained what he was from eternity past and became what he was not in a point in time. He always was and remained the same, is what he's saying, from eternity past. But at a point in time, he became that which he was not. 
This is not something that can be fully comprehend by the human brain, though we try to as best we can. And yet it is explained in such precise wording, in such simple wording in the word of God, where it says the word became flesh. And it must be believed. It must be believed for salvation. People will talk about the stable at this time of year. They will talk about Bethlehem. They will sing songs about Bethlehem. And in many people's minds, it will be a beginning point for Jesus Christ. It is not. It is simply a time of his entering into his creation. God had in the past, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1 first. Hebrews chapter 1. God had in the past chosen to reveal, that is God, the invisible God, had chosen in the past to reveal to mankind who he was in a number of different ways. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways. Now what has he done? He has chosen to reveal himself. He has chosen to manifest himself. He has chosen to let us understand who he is. How? Verse 2. In these last days has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world, and we've already seen that. And he is, that is the Son, the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. And he upholds all things by the word of his power when he had made uh, purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus Christ, the exact representation of the nature of God. God has chosen to speak to us through his son. What happened in that becoming flesh? You had it read to you in the responsive reading, though today it was read to you. But in Hebrews chapter 2, if you turn there, since you did not read it with us this morning, in verse 9, but we do see him, who is that? Namely, Jesus in verse 9 and notice in verse 10 for it was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things to bring many sons to glory but both he verse 11 who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all from the father and he goes down to verse 14 and says this since then the children that is human beings share in flesh and blood watch verse 14 he, that is Jesus, he who is the exact representation of God, he himself likewise also partook of the same. What is that? Flesh. That through death he might render powerless him who had power over death, that is the devil. And he might deliver those who through fear of death, which every human being has, were subject to slavery all their lives, for assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendants of Abraham. Therefore, verse 17, he had to be made like his brethren in all things. 
that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. And he's able to give aid, verse 14, because he's experienced what we have experienced. What is all of that saying? When he simply says the word was made flesh, this is God, eternal God, the unseen, the invisible God, taking on flesh. That's what the word incarnation means. It is making it possible for now him through experience, not just to create man in his own image and likeness, but through his own experience of coming to earth and taking on flesh, taking on a human nature, able to, through experience, suffer pain, able to, through experience, suffer rejection, able through experience to suffer what it's like to be hungry, not to just know it, but to experience it. And he is able to have gone through now in the flesh all things that we have gone through, now able to be our high priest that understand. That's why we are told in the scriptures that the son was perfected through the experience. He has now experienced it. We just sang a song. It's gone. Pastor Chris knocked the hymnal down and took it away from me. But in any way, I think I've got it right. But we just sang it. It was by Charles, Charles Wesley. It was adapted or changed a little bit the way the wording is there now. But I believe it's the second verse. Somewhere in this, I think it's the second one. But he says, the incarnate deity. He had it right. Jesus Christ is the Godhead, veiled incarnate. It is God who took on flesh. So when we talk about Bethlehem, that is God. That's why we read in Matthew that this is God with us. It's not just any babe that was there. And the world still today does not see it, but it has to see it and has to comprehend it for salvation. To say that you believe that Jesus Christ came, to say that you believe that he was born, to say that you believe that he died, to say that you believe that he was a man, but to not recognize that he was fully God, fully man, without that you don't have salvation. It tells us in verse 14, go back there to John chapter 1, that the word was made flesh, human nature that he did not have. And then it says this, and he dwelt <coughs> among us. That is, literally, he pitched a tent. That's what it means. He tabernacled is the way most theologians like to use that term. And it certainly would revert back to the tabernacle of the Old Testament in the minds of these people that John was writing to early on because they were well aware of the tabernacle. And in the Old Testament with the tabernacle, that God was among them and his Shekinah glory dwelt in their midst. And that's where they went to meet with God. And that's what he says. When God took on flesh, when he came into this world, he tabernacled, if you will. He pitched his tent. He made his home, if you will, in the midst of mankind. He did that for some 30 to 35 years where God came in among us in the flesh. 
holding all of the attributes of God, not putting any of the attributes of God aside. His glory, yes, according to the passage that we will eventually study in John. He left the glory of being in heaven with his Father. That's why it says for God, you want to see the expression of his love? This is the action. The action of agape love was to leave that glory and take on a nature which he did not have, a human nature. Only difference being without sin so that he could be the perfect sacrifice. So all of the attributes of man, did he cry? Yes. Did he hunger? Yes. Did he feel pain? Yes. Did he feel rejection? Yes. That is why, my friend, even fellow believers don't lose this. You are able to go to him in time of need and realize that you have a high priest that understands by experience the hurts that you have, who understands by experience the pain and the suffering that we feel. Yet he was able to do it without sin. God in the flesh, taking on flesh, dwelling among us. And then he says in verse 14 that we saw something. What did we see? The brightness of the glory of God. And we beheld his glory, the glory as the only begotten of the Father. Full of grace and truth in verse 14. That little babe in Bethlehem was God, very God. And when he was beheld, we beheld the brightness of God, the essential nature and glory of God in that little child. The one who was the only begotten. Now that's a term, monogonies. It'll appear a few times. I want you to make sure you understand what that term means. It means, it actually comes from the French, and it means unique. Why? He's not exactly like you or me, but he took on human nature. He's unique in that he's the only one, as I've repeated it, repeat myself again now, that ever was and ever will be fully God and fully man, who took on flesh and forever to have fully God, fully man, only begotten, unique. I believe it's best explained by turning to Hebrews chapter 11 to let the scriptures explain it itself. What does that word only begotten mean? Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. In Hebrews chapter 11, if you jump right down to verse 17, this tremendous chapter of faith says this of Abraham, but by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was offering up his what? Only begotten son. He refers to Isaac as the only begotten son. Understand some things. Because this is where, again, confusion with theology sometimes happens. Because they say, well, see, God sent his son, and that was his first son into the world. Isaac was not the first son of Abraham. Ishmael was. Nor was he the last. Nor was he, obviously, 
the only son. So what was Isaac? He was the unique son of Abraham. What do you mean unique? He was the one through whom the promise came. He was the one who God said, no, it's not going to be through Ishmael. It's not going to be through your children later. It's going to be through the one that I will miraculously bring into this world through your wife who is beyond childbearing age. He is a unique son. He's the son of promise. It helps us to understand what it means by unique. It helps us to understand what it means by only begotten. When it talks about God, this is the only begotten son of God. Why? Because he is God. Unique in that he's fully God, fully man. Back in John chapter 1, verse 14. And he's the only one that displays fully the glory of God. And he's full of grace and truth. And <clears throat> John is going to move us from understanding the word that he's been introducing to us to the person of Jesus Christ that he will talk about in chapters 1, 2, all the way through the end of the book. So that we might fully comprehend this babe in Bethlehem. And that he wants us to concentrate on Jesus Christ throughout the book. This one that is absolutely full. What does it mean, full of grace and truth? Let me read to you Colossians chapter 2 and verse 9. You can mark it down for reference, but listen to the words of it. Colossians chapter 2 verse 9. For in him, that is Jesus Christ, all the fullness of deity, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Can't be any clearer. Very precise. In that Bethlehem scene, in there is the absolute fullness of God. Absolutely interesting that it uses these terms, full of grace and truth. It will be the introduction to us to who Jesus Christ is in verse 17. It will also help us to see that those are the elements that are absolutely necessary for salvation. What? Truth. Jesus Christ would say that he is the way, the truth, and the life. No man can come unto the Father but by him. He is truth. And in him is the fullness of truth. And man must come to the understanding of who he is in truth. And he's also the absolute display, the absolute visual aid, the absolute presentation to all mankind of the grace of God and the demonstration that absolute grace is needed for salvation. That's what you have in Bethlehem. Action. The necessary components. The absolute fullest expression. Fullest expression of God himself in bodily form. God's grace fully expressed. Why? To leave his glory? To come to earth? To take on flesh? To be willing to die? And in case you say, well, Pastor Dan, you take it a little bit too far. God dying? Let me remind you what it says in the book of Acts. That it specifically says in Acts that the blood that was shed was the blood of God. But God doesn't have any blood. That's the extent that he went, is fully God, fully man. That's Acts chapter 13, by the way. Fully God, fully man. Absolute, fullest expression of the display of God's love for us. 
And John reminds us. And yet he tells us that this one in the stable, this one who took on flesh, this one who is an absolute demonstration of the fullness of the glory of God and the fullness of his grace and the fullness of truth was pre-existing. Look at verse 15. John uses continuous tenses here. John bore witness of him crying out. What was his continuous message? He says this. This is or was, that's interesting even the term he uses here. This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has a higher rank than I. Why? Preexisted before me. To understand the way the New American Standard put it here, when it says higher rank, John makes it well known. He's bearing witness of the Messiah, bearing witness of the one who took on flesh, but he doesn't want us to get lost in that stable, doesn't want us to get lost and forget what he's already presented about the word, and that is his preexistence. So he says, this is he who comes after me. What do you mean? Well, let me give it to you two different ways. John the Baptist was born before Jesus was in Bethlehem, about six months. We know that from Dr. Luke. Not only is that the case, but his ministry started before that of Jesus. Before Jesus came on the scene in his public ministry, John the Baptist was already on the scene baptizing. So in every way, the ministry of John the Baptist had preceded him. Now, that was very significant in the Jewish mind. Why? Because of respect for elders and priority in the home for the firstborn and so forth. And that is the context of which the interpreters have chosen here in John chapter 1, verse 15, when it says that he's higher in rank because the older in the family was the one to receive all the benefits. They were the one that was higher in position. And John says, wait a minute, I was here physically, I was here in my public ministry before he started his, but he's in higher rank than I am. Why is that, John? He tells us, for he existed before me. Now, wait a minute. You were here first and he existed before you? Yeah. The word was made flesh, and he tabernacled among men. It was the pre-existing God who is higher in rank, who owns everything, who created everything, who entered in in a point in time in God's perfect timing according to two passages of scripture when the fullness of time was come. And he entered into the realm of man taking on flesh, but he was already preferred before because he was here. That is why we're going to find out later on in this gospel account, the Lord Jesus Christ would, will eventually say this, before Abraham was, I am. I was here. I was here. So it's the pre-existing one. He is also the provider, verse 16 and 17, of grace and truth. Look at verse 16 and 17. For it's of his fullness we have all received and grace upon grace. Let me just get to verse 17 for a, sec a second. Because it says there, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. There is no question John has identified the word of God. God has ident identified for us who the word is. It's the one that's full of grace and truth. And it is through Jesus Christ that grace and truth came. 
It is that one in the stable who became flesh. He is the one that we're talking about is about the word. He is God, very God, and yet fully human. And he tells us that right there in verse 17. As he contrasts with the law, and I'll go back to 16 in a second, where everyone looks to the law, the commandments, and trying to obey. There are people today in the 21st century that are trying their best to obey the Ten Commandments and do the best that they can to be good, hoping they will get to heaven. The law that was given through Moses only directs us because it's a schoolmaster to bring us, I mean, to, to point us to the schoolmaster, that is Jesus Christ. Because it only shows us how sinful we are. It doesn't make us righteous. It exposes our unrighteousness. But Jesus Christ does make us righteous. And in verse 16, you notice he includes himself. We have all received. Believers have benefited by the fullness of God's gift of salvation. The fullness of grace. Interesting term. Grace upon grace. I believe it can be literally translated, if I got it right, grace instead of grace. Or grace in place of grace. Now what does that mean? It simply means this. We have the demonstration of the fullness of God's grace and it is limitless. Our life for those who have trusted in Christ, we experience in a recipient of the grace of God, first of all, in the person of Jesus Christ. But have you ever reflected as a believer on the continuous grace? Because I believe that's part of this grace upon grace, as it's translated in English. It is waves of grace. You ever gone to the ocean? You're standing on the seashore. And you're standing on the ocean, and a wave comes, and then there's another one right behind it, and there's another one right behind it, and there's another one right behind it. And if they're big enough and you turn your back, you're going to fall because it's going to hit you in the back and knock you down. That's what we have here. God's grace is just continuously wave after wave after wave in our life of the demonstration of the grace of God. You say, but all the pain that I'm suffering... All the things that I go through, the heartache that I have, the experiences of life, you're focusing on the problem because God's grace is showing its waves to you every day. Every day. In the person of Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. It is limitless grace is another way to put it. It is inexhaustible grace. I believe that's what he's referring to in verse 16. And we are all experiencing it. First of all, in the receiving of Jesus Christ, but then belonging to him day after day. And then in verse 18, no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Finally, we see that Jesus Christ is the explainer. He's not only the pre-existing one, he not only shows us the grace and truth of God. He not only is the word made flesh, but he's the explainer of God. Let me just say it, if you're looking at it, in your Bibles, there is a variant in the scriptures, and I personally prefer what the New American Standard has chosen to do for translation. It says the only begotten God in my Bible. Some of yours may read the only begotten Son. Both are acceptable based on the manuscripts. 
but I believe the most reflective of the context of the verse and supported by most manuscripts is the concept only begotten God because that's who he is. He is the only begotten son of God and he is the only begotten God and he's the only begotten one. Different ways of just showing us that Jesus Christ, none of us have seen God. No one, you say, what about Moses? Didn't he see him? What about Isaiah? It says in Isaiah 6 that I beheld God, not, not in the fullness. According to Exodus, let me just read this verse to you. In Exodus chapter 33, it says, you cannot see my face, for no man can see my face and live. No one can see the face of God. You might see the backside. You might see the expression of God. You might see it in the person of Jesus Christ, and that's what he's dealing with here. So if we wanted to see God and what God is like in the flesh, where do we look? To the stable. Where do we look? To the cross. Where do we look? To Jesus Christ. No wonder he will say later to Philip, Philip, how can you ask to see the Father? Don't you know? Haven't I been such a long time with you? Don't you know, Philip, that when you've seen me, you have seen the Father? God in the flesh. Unique. He is the one. It's an interesting word. What I'm trying to do and have sought to do as, as Pastor Stringer and others before us and others in this church is to exegete the scriptures to you. That's what the word is here. The Lord Jesus Christ exegetes the Father. You say, well, what does that mean? It means it interprets him and explains him. That's what Jesus Christ does. He is the one who knows the Father. Why? Because he's God. He's the one that knows everything about God. Why? Because he's God. He's the one that can fully explain him to us. Why? Because he knows. And he's able to do it better than anyone else. So Jesus Christ, when it says at the end, he explains him. He is the one. That one in Bethlehem, that one at this time of year that we celebrate the birth of, Jesus Christ, who we'll sing songs about, who we'll have a cantata about, Lord willing, two weeks from today, and all of that that surrounds, that's the one that loved you. That's the one who died for your sin. Fully God, fully man. The word made flesh, the pre-existing one, the one who is the explainer of God. You want to see God? You want to understand his love? You want to understand grace and truth? Look to the stable. But realize that in the stable was not where it ended. That's where God, who was here all along, came in time and took on human nature that he might go because as the sinless one fully man but without sin could go to the cross and pay the penalty in price and listen experience death God cannot experience death but the God man could why? To satisfy the righteousness of God, to satisfy the payment, and by his marvelous grace, that as many as would believe in him 
should not perish, but have everlasting life. We owe our eternal destinies to that stable scene. We owe our eternal destinies to the unique one, holy God, holy man who forever will be such, who one day the believer will see face to face, and one day we will look on him and be reminded of the sacrifice so that we could have forgiveness of sins and the gift of eternal life. Fellow believer, this Christmas, while the world has incorporated a number of things that have come out of different traditions, to put it simple, and have incorporated into this time of year, I hope that as a Christian you will realize and reflect at Christmas time on the magnitude of that scene in the stable and what God did in sending his son that would eventually become a man and make it possible for you to have eternal life. And if you have not yet come to Christ, it's a time of giving, it's Christmas time. It's a time of getting gifts and giving gifts. The scriptures put it this way, that Jesus Christ is God's unfathomable, unspeakable gift. It was a gift in that stable. It was a gift to man of God taking on flesh and dwelling among us, going to a cross, dying and rising from the dead so that we could have eternal life. Trust in him today. If you've never trusted in him, that's the greatest gift that you could have at Christmas time is the gift that God offered in the person and son of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father in God, I thank you and praise you that you and your sovereignty not only created all that we know, not only created us in your own image and likeness, but, oh, Father, in your plan from all eternity, saw that in your perfect timing you would take on flesh, that the second person of the Trinity, unchanged in his deity, but in time would take on a human nature, a fully God, fully man, that he might satisfy your righteousness, demonstrate the grace and truth of God to its fullness, explain the Father to us in his presence, and Father, offer eternal life to as many as would believe. Might Christians this time of year, this time of season, be encouraged and reflect on that stable and remember the significance of what you've done for us. And might we see in our daily walk the demonstration of that grace upon grace, the waves of grace that you send our way, overflowing to its full. And might we be a thankful people. Might you cause us to examine our hearts, our motives, our speech, our actions. And oh God, forgive us for the many things that we do that hurt you or hurt others. And Father, might you work in the hearts of those that might be in our presence this morning that have not yet trusted in Jesus Christ. Might they come to see who it was in that stable and who it is that came he might offer himself as a propitiation for sin 
might they trust in him and have forgiveness of sins and the gift of eternal life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. For those of you that might have come.